0: Jesus asked that you would help, uh, help me, help us to understand that story and know how it connects to our life. Lord, speak through me, speak through the thoughts that we're going to have in these next few minutes. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we're Thanksgiving, my family and I went to the Tri-Cities to spend it with my parents. And the next day, we went to a small town nearby named Dayton, where my parents grew up. And they have a museum there that sort of highlights, sort of, uh, sort of highlight moments In Dayton's history. So it's a small museum, obviously. (laughs) And in one of the rooms there, there was a wedding dress from 1906. And the plaque said it belonged to a woman named Lida Jackson. Well, Lida was my great-grandmother. So we saw that dress and we took a moment to take this picture of my mom and my daughter Lucy with great-grandma's dress in the background my wife was taking the picture, and you know my wife is Chinese, and as she was taking it, I leaned over and I said, I'll bet in all her born days, Lida Jackson never thought she'd have a (laughs) half-Chinese great-great-granddaughter. I don't think Lida Jackson ever saw a Chinese person, which just goes to show that your past and your present can't necessarily predict your future, which is good news in most cases, if you think about it, (laughs) especially if what's in your past is painful. It doesn't mean that your future can't be filled with hope and joy if Jesus is a part of it. But even if your past and your present are good right now, right? Things are going great. With Jesus, it can be even better. I mean, Lida Jackson had no idea that she was going to have a great great granddaughter that cute. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, I, I was pretty darn cute, you know, and I'm sure that when she saw me, she thought, I can die now. I've seen cute, right? But Lucy, man, I mean, Scientific research has objectively shown she is the cutest eight-year-old in America. Don't even, it's science. Don't even argue with me. All right. Let me ask you this. Where do you feel bound by your past or your present? Maybe it's a family deal. Maybe you grew up in a dysfunctional family. Did any of you not grow up in a dysfunctional family? Let's, <laughs> let's do it that way, right? I mean, especially in the holiday season, right? Anyone here dealing with some family members who have a lot of baggage plus carry-ons, right? Anyone? (laughs) Or maybe what's holding you back is some mistake you've made or a financial or a career problem. Or maybe things are going great, good job, good family, but you're a little bored and wondering if there isn't more. Whatever it is, the good news of Christmas is Jesus can break through all of that stuff and bring us a bright new future. We're doing a sermon series called Awkward Family Moments, looking at the genealogy in Matthew. Matthew starts his Christmas story with a genealogy of Jesus' ancestors. And some of Jesus' ancestors were heroes of the faith, like Abraham, Jacob, and King David. And some of his ancestors were notorious sinners, like Abraham, Jacob, and King David. And in his genealogy, Matthew lists five women, which was shocking because women weren't included. It was usually just men. But more scandalous still were the women, the particular women Matthew lists. Tamar, who commits incest. Rahab, who was a prostitute. Ruth, who was a foreign enemy. Bathsheba, who commits adultery. And Mary, Jesus' mother, who would have been thought of as an adulteress for being pregnant by the Holy Spirit before she was married. But more shocking than even all of that are the women Matthew leaves out. Like the founding matriarchs of Israel, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, right? They had great stories. Matthew leaves those women out and includes the scandalous women instead. It's like he was trying to offend people, right? Trying to. And most shocking of all is the story we read today. I'm just starting with the hardest one first, where Judah commits incest with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. It is a shocking story. And we didn't even read the most shocking parts of it. I left that out because I want to keep my job, <laughs> which means you're all going to go home and read it, right? You're all going to go, wow, what's in there, right? I, you people. <clears throat> this is not one of those famous Bible passages you hear a lot. You know, most of you have probably never heard a sermon on this story. When was the last time you heard this read at a wedding, right? <laughs> I mean, should we do the love is patient, love is kind thing or Judah and Tamar? I'm stuck. I don't know, right? I told someone this week I was preaching on this story and she said, oh, ick, why? That was very encouraging. And she said, well, where's the happy Bing Crosby Christmas part of that? Well, here's the thing. It's part of Matthew's Christmas story. Matthew started his Christmas story with this, so it's part of ours. And the good news in it is this. As a result of her liaison with Judah, Tamar has twins. One, she names Perez, which means breakthrough, and the other she names Zerah, which means brightness. So here's the point. Jesus can break through whatever mess we face to bring us a bright new future. Thank you for the amens. I love that. Now, the background of this story is important. So let me do a little bit of background. Judah is one of Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob was a founder of Israel, had 12 sons. Judah had three sons. Tamar was married to his oldest son, who we are told was very wicked and who dies somehow as an expression of God's judgment. We don't know how he dies, maybe a natural consequence somehow of his sin. But then Tamar marries Judah's second son, who also dies. So Judah says, wait for my third son to grow up and then you can marry him. Now what you need to understand, what's going on here, is back then widows were the most economically vulnerable people in the culture. A woman couldn't just go get a job. Her only support was a husband, and if she was a widow, it would be harder to be remarried. So the the, the law said that if a man died, it was the father-in-law's job to provide for his widow, and if he had any other sons, to give them to her as kind of a replacement husband. So Judah promises to give Tamar his third son, but he doesn't do it. So Tamar is left in a very vulnerable position with no options. So to force Judah's hand, she puts a veil on her face, disguises herself as a prostitute. Judah then sleeps with her, not recognizing her as his daughter-in-law. And as a promise for future payment, leaves his seal and his staff, which is sort of the equivalent of leaving his credit card in his wallet as pledge for future payment. Three months later, it's discovered that Tamar is pregnant. Judah says, immoral woman, burn her at the stake. Also, probably, it gets rid of her as an economic liability for him. But then she sends back his seal and his staff and says, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. Busted. So then Judah says, she is more righteous than I, which isn't saying much, that's a low bar, right? Since I wouldn't give her to my son and he did not sleep with her again. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Stand for our final song. Holy cow, you think your family has problems. This is so messed up. But here's the hope. We see God's grace breaking through this thing in all kinds of ways that I'm going to get to. The Bible doesn't condone what they do; did. It was sin. But we see God redeeming it. For starters, Judah repents and becomes a changed man. We'll see that in a minute. But then Judah and Tamar become ancestors of Jesus. This is Matthew's point. Jesus is from these people, the tribe of Judah. Israel was divided into 12 tribes named after Jacob's 12 sons. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. The book of Revelation calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. And if you know the story about the tribe of Judah, you know that's an oxymoron, sort of like jumbo shrimp or California culture, right? (laughs) Because lion symbolizes power and strength and dignity. But the tribe of Judah symbolizes all the opposite. For starters, it was started by the most sinful of Jacob's 12 sons, Judah, as we've just seen. But then not only that, as their history goes on, the tribe of Judah kind of turns out to be a loser tribe. I mean, in the Bible, they are conquered over and over by the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. Everybody conquers them. They were the mariners of the Middle East. put it this way if they were a car they would not be a rolls or a mercedes they'd be a ford pinto now if you are too young to remember that it was an ugly boxy little car that burst into flames when hit from behind in high school my parents had a pinto a friend of mine put a rag in the tailpipe to make it look like a wick do do you know how embarrassing it was for me to take a girl out on a date in my rolling roman candle i mean it was just judah was the ford pinto okay And yet, and yet, this is the tribe that produces all the kings of Israel, including David. This is the tribe that produces Jesus himself. When God decided to come himself in the person of Jesus, he didn't choose one of the good tribes like the Levites. No, no, no. He picked the sinful, loser Ford Pinto tribe of Judah. As if to show that there is no failure so bad, no family so messed up, no life so broken or for that matter, no life so boring or so dull that he can't break through and bring his light in three ways we see in this story. And the first is this. When Jesus breaks into our past, it means that our past is not prologue to our future. A lot of times we feel disqualified because of our past. Maybe it's some past sin that you have done that haunts you. Or some hurt we've received growing up by parents or peers. Maybe it's tapes from the past that play over and over in our head. You know, where we're told you're not good looking enough or smart enough or athletic enough or whatever it is. And those tapes just keep playing and we can't get free of them. But Judah and Tamar's story showed that when Jesus enters our lives, past does not have to be prologue. Old patterns really can be broken. But not on our own. Only through Jesus. Jesus. You see, this is not a story of Judah and Tamar pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. No, they're redeemed because they are part of Jesus' story. If it weren't for the fact that Judah and Tamar are part of Jesus' family, end up in Jesus' genealogy, without Jesus, their story would be sad and sordid. But with Jesus, their story gets redeemed. And you begin to see that a little bit when Judah says, she is more righteous than I. What he's doing is he's confessing his sin which is the first step in beginning to overcome our broken past, admitting we've got an issue, right? And then the next time we see Judah, a few chapters later, later in Genesis, his brother Benjamin has been falsely accused of stealing something. He didn't do it. And Benjamin's about to be thrown into prison. And Judah steps forward and says, no, 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 take me instead. This will break my father's heart. Take me. That he offers himself as a sacrifice. That is a very different Judah than we see in Genesis 38. With Damar, he has been transformed. The grace of God has been working in his life and his past failures were not prologue to his future. I read an interview with David Simmons, a football player for the Dallas Cowboys some some years back. He talked about how his father was a very angry, critical man. At one point when Dave was like six or seven years old, his father gave him an unassembled bicycle and told him to put it together. Can you imagine? I can't even plug in my DVD player, right? Well, when he couldn't do it and he was in tears, his dad finally said, I knew you couldn't do it and just humiliated him. All, all throughout his football career in, in school and then later in the pros, Dave said his father was unrelenting in his criticism of every little thing he did wrong. Dave said, you know, most men get butterflies before the game. I got them after the game having to face my dad's criticism. All of this left Dave stressed out, angry, bitter, and he began to notice that he was becoming just like his dad, angry and critical. But along the way, he started following Jesus. And the more he experienced Jesus' grace and love, he began to change and build bridges to his dad by asking his dad about his growing up. And one of the things he discovered was that his dad's dad had been very angry. At one point, had destroyed a pickup truck with a sledgehammer because it wouldn't start and had beaten his son. And Dave Dave said, knowing about my father's past not only made me more sympathetic for him, But it helped me see that under the circumstances, he could have done much, much worse. And the relationship began to improve. Eventually, Dave's dad was able to say that he was proud of him. And Dave says, by the time he died, I can honestly say we were friends. Because of Jesus, past was not prologue. You know, there's a disclaimer you sometimes hear in ads Uh, about buying certain stocks or gold or whatever, you know the disclaimer, you've heard it. You know, past performance does not guarantee future results. In other words, if this stock tanks, don't come whining and crying to us, it's your own darn fault, right? But in a way, that statement, I think, could be positive. With Jesus, past problems, past wounds, past sins do not guarantee future results. Which brings me to my second point. And that is when Jesus breaks into our present... It means that our present doesn't have to be perfect, just showing progress. Judah and Tamar are not perfect by the end of this story, but they have shown progress. Jesus is not asking you to be perfect. Everyone else is. Your boss is, your family is, your kids are, you probably are, but this is the one place with Jesus. He is not asking you to be perfect. Instead, Jesus looks at us and says, I see you for who you can be. I see the you I created you to be. And I am not asking you to be perfect, just that you, help me help you make, let me help you make progress. You know, the Christian motto is this. I am not what I could be. I'm not what I one day will be. But by the grace of Jesus, I'm not who I was. With Jesus' past was not prologue, our present need not be perfect, just progressing. And finally, Jesus breaks into our future so that we can leave a legacy. You know, in spite of their sin, Judah and Tamar leave a legacy, and it's a good one. They become Jesus' ancestors. And here's the amazing thing. God doesn't just use them in spite of their sin. It's even more amazing than that. God actually works through them at the point of their sin. Jesus is the product of their sinful union. He is descended from Perez, not some other kid they had. He is the byproduct of their sinful union. And here's the amazing thing. Their sin does not taint Jesus' holiness. It's the other way around. His grace is so strong, it cleanses their sin. That's the physics of grace. Where sin increased, the grace of God increases all the more. And He transforms their story from one of incest and fratricide and squalor to one that shows that God can overcome anything from mess to Messiah. That's their story because of Jesus. This is a point that is close to my heart because of my own family's history, not my mom's side. That the picture I showed you earlier was my mom's side, but on my dad's side. And I've shared with you before about how my grandmother and my dad stopped generations of family dysfunction. My dad's dad physically and verbally abused all six of his kids and then he left. No one knew where he was. He didn't send a dime. The family was so poor, at times they had to squat in abandoned buildings. They were homeless. It was behavior that my grandfather had learned from his dad, who at one point was put into prison. My grandmother had a nervous breakdown. But then she pulled herself together and decided that all six of her kids were going to go to college. Now, that was a bold move for a very poor woman with six kids at the end of the Depression whose family had never gone to college. No one had ever gone to college. But she decided all six were going to go to college. She didn't know how, but she was going to get them there. And she got her done. All six of the kids went to college. Some of them went on to get graduate degrees. And then as you go to the next generation, my generation, I mean, out of her 17 grandchildren, of whom I am the favorite, just you know that, there are degrees and titles and more about penguins than you ever want to know. And she told me many times the source of her hope and strength was Jesus. And my dad, raised under the worst of circumstances, decided that though Dudley men had been behaving badly forever, he would be the dam that would hold back generations of Dudley dysfunction. And he did. And my dad will tell you that a sor- the source of his strength and hope and inspiration was Jesus. Past was not prologue to our future. My dad and my grandmother were not perfect. They made mistakes, but they also made progress. And they left a legacy that is deep within me. I mean, this is what it means to be a Dudley, right? This is part of our story. This is what it means. We're a mess. We're, we're red Nick Hicks from the sticks of Eastern Washington. We are a country western song <laughs> and proud of it, right? But when Jesus enters a mess, he can turn it around. That's the legacy that they left me. And not just me, but all of my grandmother's 17 grandchildren, of which I am the favorite. (laughs) God used that mess as a fulcrum to bring his redemption. And it's because it was so messy that to me it's so beautiful. So, what legacy are you leaving to your kids? whether they're children or whether they're adults, are you passing down more to them than the family inheritance and some money? What values are you passing down to them? Do you have a family mission statement that your kids help you write whether they're 50 or 5 years old? Do they know what it means to be a Smith or a Jones or a Brown or a Gewurzteminer or whatever your last name is? And yes, I know that's a line, but it seems to fit just by the looks of some of you. What's your legacy? And not just to your kids, but your friends, your coworkers. Your neighbor's your church. There's a man I know in California, very successful guy, he's got C's and O's in his job title, all that stuff, but was also an alcoholic and had a terrible marriage, lots of fighting or worse, cold indifference, and he'd had some affairs. And, you know, it was behavior, all behavior he'd seen in his own dad. But then one day, his his pastor at church preached a sermon that convicted him. Didn't make him feel guilty, guilt is of the devil. Guilt is when you think, oh, I'm slime. Conviction is different. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit moves us to think, how did I become the kind of person who's doing what I don't want to do? Right? Felt conviction, and, and, and he realized that his behavior was destructive not only to himself but his wife and especially his teenage sons who were lear- learning a very cheap version of manhood from him. So he decided to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous. But the only group he could find was in the industrial section of the city that he lived in, in California. And he walked into this, the group, this corporate executive with C's and O's and his job title and all that stuff. And he looks at the group and it was nothing but a bunch of homeless men sitting around in a circle. And he said, it's the first time he felt the presence of Jesus. And this thought, you know, he looked at, he looked at this group of men and he, homeless men and he thinks to himself, I'm not one of these men. But then he felt the presence of Jesus and the thought popped into his head that said, oh, yes, you are. So he sat down and when it became his turn, he said, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic and I'm an adulterer, but I don't want to be. Well, that began a several years journey for him of change. He quit drinking. Eventually, he began looking for ways to serve his wife, help his wife become everything. She was meant to be in Christ. And then over the next two years, their marriage gradually improved. There was more laughter, more intimacy. They, they loved each other again. Not only that, they liked each other. Plus, he began to experience Jesus more. He said at first it's like a muscle of, you know, he you, 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 you didn't feel anything, but it's like a muscle. If, if you exercise it, it actually gets stronger and bigger. He said he's now begins to, he senses Jesus' presence around him. He says, it's kind of exciting to think that God, you know, is with me, talking to me. And he also began to invest more in his teenage sons. First, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. The relationship was so broken, but eventually they warmed up to him. And now they look up to him as a role model, not because he's been the perfect dad and husband. He hasn't been. But because of how he let Jesus into his failures so that they could be redeemed. And then he did one more thing. He began to mentor some younger business guys he knew so that they would not make the same mistakes that he made. And he says that doing that is actually more exciting to him than the business deals he's done because he feels like he's making a difference. He's part of changing lives. Because of Jesus, past was not prologue. He's not perfect, but he's progressing and he's leaving a legacy to his sons about how to be a man, but also to those younger businessmen whose lives and families will be different for generations because of him. And even if he hadn't had the alcoholism and the affairs, if his life had been going great, it would be going even better now because he's about something bigger. He's about God's rescue mission to God's people. That's what Jesus can do with your past, your present, and your future legacy. If you let him in. And even if life is good, he can make it better. And if you haven't let him in, I'd encourage you to do that. You just have to say, Jesus, come in, be my leader, be my forgiver. And if you do know him, follow him. Do what he says to do. Because if he can transform even Tamar and Judah's story, he can transform yours that is that is why Matthew starts his Christmas story with this genealogy because what he's trying to say is that when God chose to break into our world himself in the person of Jesus and bring his bright new future he made it as hard on himself as he possibly could right I mean the degree of difficulty on this baby is a full-on 10 he didn't choose some righteous perfect holy family you know like yours or mine no 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 He chose this messed up, wrecked, ruined, dysfunctional family that would make even Jerry Springer blush, right? As if God was saying, I can bring redemption with my eyes shut and both hands tied behind my back. And you can search the Chronicles of Human History. And you can read all the books of all the religions of the world and you will never, you will never, you will never find a God like this. A God who would descend so low that we would rise so high. And to show us that there is no family so dysfunctional, no heart so broken, no financial burden so deep, no relationship so ruined, no sin so sordid, no addiction so entrenched, no marriage so rocky. For that matter, no, no, no boredom so deep, no life so dull, no soul so empty that Jesus cannot make it new because he comes, as the Christmas carol says, to make his blessings known, not just in church, not just when we're gussied up singing our holy songs, not just when we've got our Jesus faces on. No, no, no. He comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found, as far as that curse is found, as far, as far, as far as the curse is found. Jesus is there to set you free. And if you want to know how different our God is than every other God, communion is a great reminder that our God did not stay up there like every other God does. He came all the way down as far as the curse is found. How far is that curse found? All the way down to a cross, all the way down to death. No God would go that low to bring his people that high. It's never, done, never been done before. Only Jesus, only Jesus. And communion is a reminder. Even the ordinariness of this bread and this juice shows that God, our God, is the kind of God who descends into the mess of our lives to redeem it and bring us out of the pit. And this is a moment before you have a busy week as you come to communion, this is just a moment for you and Jesus to do a little bit of business. Just to listen to the music, Sing if you want to. Encourage you. There will be prayer ministers around the room if you want prayer for any reason. You can go to one of them. If you've got a burden you want prayer for, if, you, if, 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 if there's a, a joy you want to celebrate, if you just want more of Jesus, there will be prayer ministers around during the communion time. This is just some time set aside for you to connect to Jesus before you roll into another busy week. Jesus, thank you so much that you came all the way from heaven to earth to redeem us and pull our lives from the pit. And Lord, in these next few minutes, as we come to communion, as we receive prayer, as we hear the music, as we sing, ask that you would meet us, that this would not just be a ritual, but we believe you're here, and by faith we can encounter you. Thank you for this great gift. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.